this feels like everyone's following a formula, but no one's actually thinking about telling a story. And these are stories. Joel Kletke and his team turn out some of the most compelling and effective case studies being written today through Case Study Buddy. With the level of expertise he's attained, you'd assume he's been gunning for case studies since day one, maybe even went to school for it in some way. But no, it was all an accident. It was just after I worked on a project for WP Engine, and someone there associated with the company came to me afterward, and just the kind of person who's like pretty high up, really well connected, and the sort of person where if they ask you to do something, you're like, sure, yeah, of course, like I, I do that now, you know. So he came to me after the project because it went well, and he said, "Listen, I there's this company Pingboard, uh, and they need a case study done, and and is that something you do?" You know what's coming next, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's something I do now. Yeah, I'll figure it out. So I kind of thought, okay, well, here's an opportunity, right? Welcome to B2B Craftworks, a podcast about business writing. In this season, we're exploring power in B2B writing and how learning more about marketing and taking more responsibility for the marketing side of your writing can help you become a better writer and build a more powerful writing career. Today, we're talking to Joel Klitke about his experience as a conversion copywriter and a case study writer. Joel's a very rare kind of writer who's both done the writing himself and hired other writers to do it. He has a finely tuned sense of what makes a case study work and what makes it suck. So what does make for a good case study? Or by extension, a good case study writer? A couple things, but it starts with research. There's a lot of parallels between doing a great case study and doing conversion type work. Both really anchor in like being a good researcher, capturing the story. How do you talk to someone, understand what makes them tick and turn them into a storyteller such that you know you can you can use that intelligence use the things they're sharing to to attract people like them but you can't stop it call the customers and ask them their story there's a finesse to it as joel's learned over the years and so as i was working on this this case study for pingboard i kind of realized a few things all at once the first was holy crap these are way harder than anybody thinks that they are I know a lot of people think it's like, how hard can it be? Like problem, solution, results. Like there's the formula, go write the thing. And I think that's why so many of them suck. But as I looked around and like researched how to do these, I found like there's very few resources that actually embrace and understand what goes into doing this well. Like most just gloss over the whole interview part. Like talk to the customer, get their story, then let's get to the writing piece. I'm like that is not at all how this works. So I, I realized, okay, these are hard to do. But you know what they say, Sometimes the hardest things are also the most valuable. And that's why Joel started to focus on case studies as a core piece of his business. The more I realized that there's a huge problem in, in terms of these being really robotic and cold and not at all customer success stories, often they're like company success stories, like, look how great we are. They're boring to read. They were dry. They weren't compelling. And, and to me, what stuck out right away is like, this feels like everyone's following a formula, but no one's actually thinking about telling a story. And these are stories. So Joel started to break it down. And he built up his expertise in case study writing by following his instinct that case studies are a premium asset that requires serious research. Next thing I realized is these are a premium asset because they're hard to do. Anyone who's tried to do them knows there's so much that goes into this. And so I realized, okay, these are assets that are really critical to the sales cycle, but they're also, it can be repurposed in a lot of ways. I didn't fully understand the opportunity for repurposing at that point, but I was starting to see like, okay, like I, from the conversion world knew, 
these are good for social proof. Like you can turn them into testimonials. I, I had kind of tip of the iceberg it there though. I, I saw just the potential in marketing to some degree and thought, okay, they're repurposable and they're kind of evergreen. Unless you fundamentally change what you do or who you serve, this thing is going to be something you can use forever, which adds to the value, which adds to the price you can charge for them. Unfortunately, I charged hardly anything, so I didn't really know that going in or I'd have felt <laughs> the price a bit. But then the last thing that kind of sealed it for me is, okay, it's hard to do. Uh, it's a premium asset. And I'm like, surely somebody's like planted the flag and said like, this is all we do, right? I looked around, I thought, surely somebody has like specialized in this and made it their thing. And it was like, with very few exceptions, just like a wasteland. It was like a handful of like, freelancers who had it as an add-on service agencies who did it as one more thing but having done it and going through the process I realized like there's so much more specialized to this process that nobody is accounting for and so it just came down to like why not me like I've got the background and I understand you know, building processes I understand the potential for SEO and marketing and sales because of all of the things I've done over my career so why not like I'll, I'll build this thing and that's how I, I ultimately arrived at, okay, here's an opportunity for a productized business doing this like niche, niche thing. Is Joel just a naturally confident guy who knows how to do everything right off the bat? Not really. Joel's just perfected the art of being uncomfortable. I think one of the things I've had to learn is like doing things that are uncomfortable is how you grow. And so I, when I first launched my business in 2013, I, didn't, I, I was actively opposed to being in direct response or conversion company. It scared the hell out of me. And it's only by like doing it that I was like, actually, I'm pretty good at this and I like it a lot. But you know, my initial, like when I came out, I was doing content. I was doing blog posts and eBooks because that was what was simple and safe and easy for me. And I was scared to do like direct response and conversion because I'm like, there's so much to it. And also I was repulsed by a lot of like what I saw out there, like indirect responses, all these like sales letters with 15 different fonts and like <laughs> highlights and boxes of software on the sales page, even though no one buys software in a box anymore. And so, you know, I was like, I don't want to be about that. And I also saw the work of like, and granted the writers who write these things are like incredibly talented, but some of the stuff out there surrounding like alternative cancer treatments or stuff that I saw is like actively harmful like deceptive in the direct response world. I was like, I want no part of that. But it was when I came across the work of Joanna Weave at Copy Hackers that I was like, oh, there's actually like a really clean cut corporate side of this. And it combines all this stuff I'm already good at and passionate about, like the competitiveness that I learned in SEO, the analytics that I learned being agency side. That confidence grew slowly over time, but it grew. And so it was a confidence booster by seeing someone who did this well and, and believed in me and my work. And, and that's a whole other story, you know, how I connected with her early and she kind of like affirmed, like, I think you're, you're good at this. And, and so that kind of got me started. And it's, it's so over my career, it's been like trying stuff has been the way I figure out whether or not I want to do more of it. And with growing confidence comes a growing sense of where your talents are best put to use. For Joel, that internal magnet pulled him towards case studies and away from other kinds of work. I've written email series. Now I refer most of those, not because I'm bad at it, but I just, I don't find it as enjoyable. Or I've written ads, you know, so you have to try stuff to find out. So I almost had the attitude of the people looking at it 
from the outside saying it's a formula challenge solution results. And then as I pulled it apart, I'm like, oh, that's how hard it can be. So it was just the confidence to know, like, I trust myself on the research side. I trust myself now on the writing side. The worst thing, you know, and this sounds arrogant, but I think it's kind of the mentality you have to have once you realize what you do is valuable. I'm hardest on myself. And that's why it can, it can be this daunting thing. But I thought, okay, if I know that I'm not going to completely whiff on this, so why not give it a shot? Like I've got the tools in the toolkit at this point. Let's give it a go. What's the worst that can happen? Joel tried out that first case study and it just clicked. It was exactly the kind of problem he likes to solve. I, I love a good problem to solve, right? It's like the same thing that brings me alive about doing audits for companies on their, on their landing pages, right? I love being able to identify a blind spot and then work out how to eliminate it. And so like, I'm, I'm excited about it. I'm a self-motivated perfectionist, which like I think does more harm than good in the broad scheme of things. But like, if I'm going to do anything, I want to do it at like a level that I can live with. And the level I can live with is like really, really high. And so I feel like what's exciting for me about customer success stories is because I look around and so few people are solving these problems because I've read at this point, hundreds, maybe thousands of studies and see the same mistakes coming up over and over and over again. I mean, I get excited because there's, there's just untapped potential. It's a problem to gnaw and it's something to solve. And the same things that frustrate me about running case study buddy and solving these problems ongoing are the same things that at other times are invigorating because we're doing things that nobody else is doing or thinking about these problems in ways that nobody else is. So I think it's just like, like a monkey with a coconut. I just want to like break the thing open. That's like, there's nothing profound about it. I just like, I want to crack, you know, crack the nut. Embracing his passion for research and real customer stories, Joel was able to dig into the classic case study formula problem, solution, results, and blow it up. Well, I think it, there is the formula of problem, solution, results, but that's so incredibly surface level. It's like saying a blog post is just a title and some paragraphs and a call <laughs> to action. Like that's, that's not indicative of what really goes in. So I, I kind of realized like, okay, there's some complexity here that, that needs to be unpacked. First of all, like where are the customer, you know, where are the customers in half of these stories? There's no mention of, you know, a person. There's no quotes from them. You'd be lucky to get a quote in some of them. It was like very evident these were just being done in-house with no input from a customer. I'm like, that seems wrong because this is their story. So why are they not talking about what their challenge was or what their solution looked like, or what the results have meant for them? Joel's skill in case studies ends up coming from an amalgamation of all the rest of the kind of work he does. Conversion copywriting, voice of the customer research, messaging, positioning, it all comes to a head in a well-designed case study. I mean, I had this whole background in conversion copywriting that I've been working on over time. And so anyone who does conversion copywriting well knows that it's like 10% writing and 90% talking to people and empathy and understanding and like research. And I, thankfully, I really enjoyed all that. And so I have this, you know, I was building this background now in talking to people and, and capturing their pains and understanding what made, made them tick. And all of my best copy on the conversion side has come from customers, talking to them. How do they talk about their problem? How do they talk about their solution? So for that to be absent in case studies seemed wrong because it's just the company patting themselves on the back and saying, 
well, we did this thing and this was the result, but that's not a great story. So the storytelling aspect was missing. And the minute you add that storytelling aspect in, that's when you have now this giant world of complexity. Like I've got a mantra for myself. It sounds very pessimistic, but it serves me extremely well. Everything is harder than you think it will be. And that's okay. You have to like, to give a practical example, you're like, okay, we'll just include customer feedback. How hard can that be? Right. Those are the, that's like the death sentence is the sentence. How hard can it be? You're about to find out in every case. So how hard can it be? Well, okay, let's talk. Let's unpack, right? You've got to get the customer to buy in and agree to tell their story. You've got to capture that story in a cohesive way that's meaty and detailed so you actually have something to point to. So now we're talking about the art of the interview. You have to be a confident interviewer. You have to know not only what to ask, but how to ask it. And we can talk more about why just having a great question set is never going to be enough. Because everybody now goes, okay, run an interview. I'll go get some questions. How hard can it be? Hard. It's hard. It's going to be hard. But okay, so you need to get buy-in. That's its own set of problems. You need to run a great interview. That's its own set of problems to solve. You need to document that interview in a way that makes sense. That's its own set of problems. You've got to get approval now from the customer. That's its own set of problems. And now you're contending with legal departments. This is the kind of complexity I'm talking about. And all of that is before you even get to the story in your customer story which is how Joel can tell a phenomenal case study from a check the box case study. How do we tell an actual story here? Well, stories are human. They have emotion, they have stakes, they have tension. They're not these cold white papers where it's like, here's a metric, here's the thing we did, here's the end. So people are like filling in the blanks on problem solution results, not realizing, hey, it's a narrative art. Here's, here's where we started from and the tension and the stakes and the people involved. And then when we get to the solution, it's not just here's what we did, it's like, Here's why we did that. Here's what that looked like. Here's what went wrong when we did that and how we responded. And then when we get to the results, sort of the same thing. So not just, okay, here's the sexy metric. Everyone loves the sexy metric. 100% lift, 200% time savings. That's not, what did that mean for them? What does that look like in real life? People and situations can't be boiled down to a metric. So an example of this is like, let's say, okay, you're an office administrative software and you save them 10 hours every week. That's a great metric. What does that look like? And how that changes, like the secretary saying, I no longer have to chase people around the office to get them their paychecks. That's real, that's specific, that's a pain that someone reading that study can relate to beyond just a metric. So as I pulled these apart, I realized, okay, it's, it's this formulaic asset that's suffering from formulaic apathy, and there's a real chance to do something compelling with this. That is another thorn in Joel's paw that companies sometimes overlook how powerful case studies can be. Educating companies about how to use case studies is another one of Case Study Buddy's missions. Like almost nobody is thinking about case studies as strategic assets, thinking about who should we talk to? What kinds of stories should we be telling? How do we plan to use this, right? Most companies just like shove these things onto like a section of their site called case studies and that's the end. Or they hand them to their sales team like, here you go, you've got sales assets, goodbye. Like nobody is thinking strategically about how do we get these stories? What types of stories do we need? How do we share these stories? And so that's kind of the thing. What, what is like this little kernel at the beginning, like customer success stories, how hard can it be? When you make yourself obsessed about the potential for these things, you uncover all this stuff that even really amazing companies aren't even thinking about. And that's why I'm excited about these things is there's nothing but potential 
that even top marketers just don't have on their radar. And there's a real opportunity to make these things better than they are across the board. And, and that's why we're constantly engineering and re-engineering and thinking and rethinking the way that we approach these. So what do people who think about case studies all day look for in case study writers? A couple things stand out. People in general chronically underestimate what it takes to put a great piece of writing together. The time, the research, the ability to craft a narrative. The traits we look for is number one, we need someone who can sniff out and care about one core narrative. One of the things we see with more amateurish writers is they want to take everything good said in an interview and include it in some way. We need, <laughs> we need people that are ruthless about that. We need people that, that ruthlessly sniff out and then stick to a narrative. What we're looking for is someone who can take all of this great narrative and direction and then in the context of the case study format, we're not looking to reinvent the challenge solution results framework. I think that's the time tested framework. But within that, we need somebody who can find this nice balance of human elements and depth and tension and stakes and tell a great story. So we need them to be sleuths to find the story. And then we're looking at natural storytellers. How do they bring those elements together? I think the tricky thing about walking this tightrope I was mentioning just a minute ago but we need, to, we need to have efficiency and then also give a long enough leash to be creative with. Yes, the writing and, and mechanics have to be there, but I'm more interested in how that person thinks than, than what they write. How do they think through a story? How do they identify? Can they be ruthless? And when you write your first case study, or as you deliver a case study, don't look for a pass-fail approval. Look to evolve your storytelling skills. Look for real feedback. I've been guilty of this for a long time. They treat it like a binary, like, oh, this totally nailed it or it totally sucks. And there's, there's nothing in between. Either like, this is perfect and we love it, or like, this is garbage and we hate it. And like, there's very little middle ground. People don't seem to understand or register that like a writer needs to learn your expectations. And like, there's this iterative process of getting better, but everybody wants to be this, this situation where like, I hired the writer and they just killed it. Or like, I hired the writer and they just sucked, so I fired them into the sun. Like, that is the worst way to work with writers, but unfortunately, that's the norm right now. You like hire someone, give them one project. If they crush it the first time and like somehow smash a home run, you're like, that was pretty good. I guess we'll keep working with them. Like, you should be paying that person thousands of dollars because they read your mind. Those people are so rare and so valuable that if we ever find someone who just like somehow meets all of our expectations off the bat, we will never let them go. But that's just not the reality. And that doesn't mean that the person is a bad writer. It means more often than not, you haven't articulated what you, what you needed or haven't been patient enough to teach them. And so, you know, something that I'm learning to live by as well is expectations not communicated will rarely be met. And I promise you, next time you get frustrated in a relationship with a writer or a business person or in life in general, ask yourself, did I articulate every expectation that lives in my head? Because if I didn't, how, why am I upset that they somehow didn't preemptively understand that? But that's rare. Speaking of feedback, one of the best ways to establish your expertise and move the content you're delivering away from being a common commodity and more toward being a true expertly written piece is showing your work. I think the realization to have is like, you are, if you're legitimately great at what you do, 
having a defense for it. Like when I send drafts across to conversion copywriting clients, I always, always, always send a video explaining, here's why I did what I did. Here's why these words are this way. Here's how I've arranged things and why I've arranged it that way. Showing your work is important because it makes it about the product, not the person. It allows you to really see your work as something that can be improved and something that provides value to your clients. not something that reflects your worth as a human being. So I think there's a few things. It's like always give the writer a chance to defend what they've done, to explain the why. If they don't have a why, different conversation, right? Like as the writer, you should be able to patiently articulate why you did what you did. If they disagree with your why, that's different than disagreeing with your what. Like what did I write versus why did I write? So the what, if you're aligned on the why, the what is like easy to fix, right? If everyone agrees on why this had to be written this way, then finding the exact little wording for it, that's the easy part. But if your thinking is off or your rationale is off, that's the bigger conversation. And it's in that feedback process that you can really step up as a true writing professional. You can show them that this is a skill that you have and advice you're providing as a service. Not only does that help you stand out as the professional, it also takes the weight and the work off of your clients. In my knowledge, I'm counting on them to trust me to do my job at that point. And I will push back if I say, I believe this is going to work. We don't have a fundamental disagreement on the why behind it or the rationale behind it. So I'm not changing it. Then I'll have that conversation. But it's about taking this out of the ego and out of, oh, my precious words, how dare you? And more into this rational conversation about why did you do what you did? And I think that's the thing too, as an editor from the other side of the equation that I've been guilty of with case study buddy, I wouldn't write it that way is not a, it's not a why. Like I wouldn't do this this way. Well, too bad. It's not written by you. So in this situation, often with clients where we find that they're making word changes where it's like, I don't like this word. And if they're doing that a lot, we're going to say, okay, here's the deal. We're going to give you editing power. Go change all the words you like. Cause it's no longer worth our time at that point to battle with them over word choice. If the core narrative is there, but that's, that's the tricky thing, especially when you are a good writer or you're a high performer or whatever, I wouldn't write it that way is not a relevant pushback unless the person is ghost writing, you know, and even then like, your way of communicating is not the only right way. That's painful to hear, but like in communication, there's like infinite combinations of things that can work and you just have to accept that. So it's, it's whole own battle, but it is very difficult because writing is heart and soul work. We, we put parts of ourselves into everything that we create. So it hurts when someone wants to change that or hack that out or whatever. We get passionate about ideas. And I think it's more just the dissonance between what did I get wrong? That's frustrating than it is, you know, oh, my precious words. Case studies seem like they're about a product, but it's really about purpose. Does this accomplish the goal or does this not? And if it fundamentally does accomplish the goal, then we can focus on, in on the areas that maybe are a little bit off or need some finessing or whatever. But as long as the core goal is aligned and it's doing that job, then it's less about, well, I'm gonna throw this in the garbage and totally redo it and more about, okay, where can we like finesse this a little bit or pump this up? Again, like why, why does the thing you're creating exist? Like what is it there to do? And by the time you're through it, does it do that thing? And that's one of the best lessons you can learn from Joel. 
When you take time to get invested in the why, you set yourself apart naturally. You rise above the sea of other writers out there, and you become a force of nature yourself. I don't compete against Upwork. I don't compete against the 19 others, quote unquote, SaaS copywriters even. I compete against the three who take it seriously enough to actually do the things it takes to compete. You can learn more about Joel at casestudybuddy.com or businesscasualcopywriting.com. Joel is also really active on Twitter and LinkedIn. He has two trainings available for freelance writers to learn more about his approach to sales, as well as a course that helps marketers and agencies build their writing team. Thank you for joining us for this episode of B2B Craftworks. If you like the story we were able to tell today, go ahead and subscribe. We'll be back in about two weeks with another story about Christine Gamolka, an English lit major who ended up in six-figure technology sales and escaped those golden handcuffs to become a B2B SaaS technology writer. If this story resonated with you as a beginner writer and you think you're ready to try out B2B writing, there's still time to enroll in the B2B Writing Career Kickstarter, a four-part course designed to introduce you to the website and mindset basics you need to get started as a B2B writer and walk you through creating your first thought leadership article, case study, and white paper. Head to b2bwritinginstitute.com and subscribe to find out more.